0: How's everyone doing this morning? Wait, wait, wait. How's everyone doing this morning? So I have a question. It's a serious one. How many ladies do we have here in the auditorium that ran the four miler yesterday? I want you to stand. Please stand. All the ladies that ran the four miler yesterday. Don't be shy, stand up. Congratulations, ladies. Congratulations for that, and what a great effort that is in and in, in throughout the uh, Charlottesville community. Now, this morning, I was supposed to have been taking a break with my wife. We were supposed to go away for this weekend, but uh, some things came up, and so we decided to stay home and go away a few weeks, weekends from now. But uh, because I was going to be away, I'd ask my son that if, if he would come and preach. So my son is going to come and preach. Let's all welcome Peter as he comes out to share.
1: Good morning. There are some unfortunate perks to being a pastor's kid. If you're a surgeon's kid, you can't for your dad. <laughs> I, used, I used to think I was much different than my dad. Um, I used to think I was much smarter, and, but my hairline is receding as well. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> I've always wanted an amen. I still haven't gotten an amen. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> uh, the, the leadership <clears throat> of the newly born 20-somethings ministry uh, has been dwelling on, as we often say, the parable of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son is a, a relatively useful text in the Christian tradition because it ends with a massive party. And we thought if we were starting a 20-somethings ministry and we wanted 20-somethings to come, we might as well offer them what they want. So we, uh, we have been dwelling on this parable, uh, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, and uh, that's what I'm gonna preach from this morning. Uh, just quick note, wanted to say huge thanks to Ryan Law for leading worship. Ryan's been integral. Ryan has been integral to uh, branding and guiding the 20-somethings ministry, and I've always wanted to preach after Jack Black led worship, and so I'm uh, very honored and happy that he's here this morning. So, uh, considering the uh, remarkable fullness of the parable of the prodigal son, I thought it might be useful to read it over once together. So, if you could turn in your Bibles or click on your smartphones to Luke 15, uh, page 848 in the Bibles we provide, which one may be the title of my autobiography. Um, <laughs> let's read. This is what Jesus says. Jesus continued. I guess he doesn't say that part, but there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So his father divided his property between them. Not long after that, And was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around his son, and kissed his son. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this mine son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, "'Look, all these years I've been slaving away for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends, but when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. "'My son,' the father said, "'you are always with me, and everything I have is yours, though we had to celebrate and be glad.' Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. Okay, so I have always known that there are only two kinds of people in the world. Everybody has always known that there are only two kinds of people in the world. And I think it's pretty clear that the Gospel of Luke is teaching us that there are only two kinds of people in the world. It's one of those cliches that everybody knows and the Bible always supports, like a penny saved is a penny earned, Or you always stop at Cracker Barrel on family vacations. And um, the the problem is, of course, that everybody who believes that there are only two kinds of people in the world believes that there are two different kinds of people in the world. So when I was applying to college, the University of Chicago in 2012 had an application uh, essay that every incoming freshman had to answer. And it was, dog and cat, coffee and tea, great Gatsby and catcher in the rye, there's only two kinds of people in the world, what are they? And finding that quite intimidating, I didn't write the essay, and I didn't apply to the University of Chicago, so I didn't get into the University of Chicago. So who knows, I could have been a great economist or a national famous producer of sausages and bluegrass music or something, but I didn't, and the whole course of my life was radically altered. I couldn't answer the question of how many people there were in the world, so I started asking around, as one naturally would do. And I asked my Italian grandmother, She's about this tall, she's in my pocket right now. And uh, she was the understudy for the Italian mother-in-law and everybody loves Raymond, so she's tiny and pinchy and blonde and very acutely passive aggressive. And she, um, I said, hey, nanny, what two kinds of people are there in the world? And she said, there are those who are Italian and those who wish they were. <laughs> and you might think that's trite. But in her town of Easton, Pennsylvania, where she grew up with Bartolottas and Costanzas and Carais and Dragatas, there really are only two kinds of people in the world, Italians and those who wish they were. Because if you don't wish you were Italian, you wake up like with a horse's head in your bed, or sleeping with the fishes, or there's a brick through your window. And she once, without a bone of irony in her body, told me, don't marry Pennsylvania Dutch, The cold people. They're cold, cold people. But I do happen to be, therefore, a half-blooded Italian, so I think I'm relatively safe. And uh, then I decided to Google the question, because that's what I do, because I was born in 1994. And I Googled, what two kinds of people are there in the world? And believe it or not, Britney Spears answered this question with the phrase, there are those who can hang with me and those who are scared. (laughs) It seems quite obvious that the former is the better category, so I wrote Brittany and asked to hang out, and I have heard nothing back, but I'm very certain that she'll see this sermon and give me a ring. Um, and, and then I went and asked my sister, who's very, very bright. She'll go to UVA in the fall, very bright. And uh, she said, I swear, there are those who can hang with me and those who are scared. So if you'd like to write my sister fan mail, she's recently moved to Baltimore. Um, and then I thought, what do I think? which I assume is a fair ask question to ask oneself, what do I think? What two kinds of people are there in the world? So I said, self, and myself said, yes, and he, for whatever reason, sounds vaguely like Woody Allen. And I said, what two kinds of people are there in the world? And myself said, well, do you remember in 2002 when you were in second grade? I said, yeah. I said, you were on the playground with all the kids? Yeah. And, and this little ring collected around you and the other kid? Yeah, and you picked a fight with the other kid? That's not exactly how I remember it. it. doesn't matter for the sake of the story. The point is, you were in a circle with the other kid, and you remember he looked like a 30-year-old in a second-grader's body, like he had the muscles of a buffalo, and it was the two of you there on the playground? Yeah, and you eventually came around to the thought that something was going to go down. Yes, yes, I did. And what did you do? I pretended I was a power ranger. You pretended you were a power ranger. (laughs) You did like the ninja stance, and you called on the ancestors or something, something, and what did the kid do? He punched me in the face. He punched you in the face! And then I fell on the ground with my butt in the sandbox, and I cried with a black eye. And I remember, I remember even now, looking up at a circle of second graders who were kind of laughing and pitiable. See, I've always had the physique of Gumby. I've never been one to do particularly well in a fight. And I found out, thinking about that, that that was the day that I thought the two people in the world are bullies and losers. And I think I continue to believe this to this day. There are bullies, and there are losers. There are skinny theater kids, and there are big athletes. And I just wonder, if you ask yourself, what is the day that you found out there are only two kinds of people in the world? Is it, um, that was the day I saw her standing there, or I remember the day that plane hit those towers, or I remember the 94 election, I mean, what is it, what's the day that you decided there are only two kinds of people in the world? So not being God, neither me nor you, I decided to ask the Lord, hey, what two kinds of people are there in the world? And he didn't say anything immediately, which I've noticed is a thing he often does. So I gave him a couple uh, options, which is a thing I often do. And I said, you know, like male, female, Jew-Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. And all all he did was point me back to the parable that we'd been reading in the leadership team. All he did was point back down at Luke 15, and on further consideration, I think, I think what that means is that there are only two kinds of people in the world, and what Luke teaches us is there are people whom God wants to celebrate, and people whom God wants to celebrate with. Those are your options. The people that God throws a party for and the people that God invites to a party. So the story starts off, unlike the other two stories in Luke 15. Luke 15 has three parables, and the first one goes, what man among you if you lost a sheep? And the second one goes, what woman among you if you lost a coin? In other words, if you lose a Ben Franklin or your car keys or your kid, what do you do? You go and you look for it, and when you find it, you celebrate. But that's not how the prodigal son starts. It starts, there was a man who had two sons. This is not a story about what you do or I do. It's not a story about what comes naturally or what comes by instinct. It's a story about what God does. What God does is a father for his children. And so Luke writes, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far land. I've heard, I don't know, I don't have kids, because I'm not one of those pastor's kids, but um, I've heard (laughs) that when your kids leave home, that it's awfully hard on the parents. I don't, again, don't know, but I have a couple friends who are empty nesters, And uh, I saw one last Tuesday, his last son left home, and my dad walked up to him and said, hey, Craig, how are you doing? And all of a sudden, he just started to cry. No explanation, his last son had left for college. And I think most of us get that when the younger son leaves home, that's probably pretty heartbreaking to the father. But what you don't really get, if you don't read the text in its original language, is uh, how heartbreaking it is. So the son comes to his father, and in Greek he says, Give me the portion that's coming to me, and instead of your estate, it says, of your being. Give me half your being. And then in Greek it says, and the father split his life between them. The word for property is life, is bios. The father splits in two. Give me half of who you are, and the father gives him half of his life. It's utterly heartbreaking. And then the boy leaves home. I was at the National Prayer Breakfast this year when uh, President Obama gave his final National Prayer Breakfast speech. And when I was uh, writing this, a paragraph of what he said came to mind, and this is what he wrote. Certainly, I won't do an Obama impression. You're welcome. (laughs) Certainly, during the course of this enormous privilege to have served as President of the United States, this is what my faith has done for me. It helps me deal with the common everyday fears that we all share. The main one I'm feeling right now is that our children grow up too fast. They're leaving. It's a tough deal. And so as a parent, you worry about, will some harm befall them? How are they going to manage without you? Did you miss some central moment in their lives? Will they call or will they text? I have no idea if Malia will call or text him. But what I do know is, in first century Palestine, when your kid leaves home, your kid leaves home. There's not a mail service in first century Palestine. When he's gone, he's gone, and he's gone with half of his father's life. And so, uh, you have to imagine that when the boy leaves, his father just watches him go. And he's muttering under his breath to himself, don't do it. Don't go. Don't go and it's not the money it's not that he's running off with the money it's just that his kid is gone i was reminded uh, when i thought about that just the thought that the father simply does not want his son to g- want his son to go of uh, a poem by ee e. cummings called if and the last stanza of the poem goes like this if fear was plucky and if globes were square and dirt was cleanly and tears were glee things would seem fair yet they'd all despair For if here was there, we wouldn't be we. We wouldn't be us. It wouldn't be you and me. I like this poem in this context because it reminds me at least that all God wants to do is be with you. God doesn't want to be without his kid. You can take half of his life and still all he wants is to be with you. I think sometimes we think that is one of the most uh, unintelligible uh, truths shall we say, of what uh, people who follow Jesus believe. But I think it's got to come home to us. He just doesn't want his son to leave. He watches him walk away, and then Luke writes this. The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living but we don't know exactly what he does there. Like, uh, did he wake up in the far more east? Did he wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy? Or was it like Sunday morning, rain is falling? Was his daily schedule pour out, drank, headshot, drank, sit down, drank, stand up, drank, pass out, drank, waste up, drank, faded, drank? That was a joke for the 20-somethings. It's a lyric from a song, and I'm not very cool, so I have not heard it often. But as I understand that, <laughs> songs like this, exemplify the height of selfishness, the height of immorality in our culture, of famous people spending famous money in prodigal ways. But the fact of the matter is, Luke does not tell us how the younger son spends his money. He just says he spent it in reckless living. The word reckless living in Greek is zon asotos. The word asotos means without salvation. Kenneth Bailey, is the uh, most important commentator on this, on this parable. I promise you, any time you've ever heard anybody preach on the prodigal son in the last decade, they took all of their research straight from Kenneth Bailey. You should buy the book. It's called The Pro- Cross and the Prodigal, 80 pages long. You could leave now, and you would get the rest of the sermon just so long as you bought the book and read it. But this is what Kenneth Bailey says. The phrase, zone asatos, reckless living, does not tell us whether the money was wasted in moral or immoral ways. It simply tells us that it was wasted, that it was spent wildly. He could have bought a Porsche, or he could have bought booze, or a record label, or or a tattoo, or a saltwater pool. I mean, it really doesn't tell us. All it tells us is that it went, and it went fast, and it went in such a way that when a famine hit the land, he didn't have a leg to stand on. In all probability, he was trying to buy friends. That's what you do in the ancient Near East when you come into money. You throw parties, you buy people presents, you try and buy yourself friends. You try and get the reputation of a generous person. But all we know is that at the end of the day, he had nothing left. And so, Luke writes, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field, to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. In Greek, in fact, the word anything is not there. In Greek, it simply says, and no one gave to him. He's profoundly alone. I I wonder, I don't know, how many of you have maybe been there? Like when you're a kid and you get a giant bag of Halloween candy or something and you're like this tall and the bag is this tall and you're thinking, oh my gosh, this bag of candy is never gonna end and then you eat it all in one sitting or you show up on a college campus and you're like four years might as well be a lifetime so you, you know, major in the humanities and then at the end of the day, you have a stomach ache and a bachelor's in religion and you're preaching at your dad's church. But, um, <laughs> We've all, we've all been there. Like, we've all been at this place where you thought you would never see the end of the money. And all of a sudden, the money is gone, and the famine hits, and you're stuck in a pigsty. And I, I'm only 22 years old. I have not gotten very far in life. But as I understand it, the pigsty can be a lot worse than a bellyache and a degree in the humanities. As I understand it, life does, in fact... Uh, have a way of striking you without you knowing it's coming, of getting out from under your control. And I simply realize, if any of—I simply wonder—if any of you might be there this morning. It's lonely in the pigsty, don't you know? He's a good Jewish boy. He came from a good Jewish family. He had a rich Jewish dad, and now he's feeding pigs. If you ask a Jew of the first century, hey Moshe or Ibrahim or David. What two kinds of people are there in the world? He says there are the Gentiles and the Jews. We are the Jews. We're righteous, we're holy, we keep the laws, we keep the kushrit, we dress right, we talk right, we interact right. And then there are those Gentiles, and they're dirty, nasty people. They're very dirty, dirty, and nasty. And they eat forbidden meat like pigs. And now this boy is working for them, and he's raising their unholy food. And no one gives him, no one gives to him anything. He's alone in a pigsty with a bunch of pigs. So he goes out in the mornings, and he goes, you know, like, sue And Porky, and Pinky, and Petey, and Pongo come out, and he starts feeding them from the slop bucket. He feeds them these pods. And we don't know how long he's there. I don't know how long a person can stand that. But we do know eventually he starts thinking, I would rather be anywhere else but here. I would rather be anyone else. And he works up this little speech that goes, "Uh, Dad, (laughs) I know I'm not worthy to be your son, but if you take me back as a hired hand, I will work the inheritance up that I owe you, and then you and I will be even, no harm, no foul. That's the thought. He just thinks, I'd rather be at Dad's house. Dad's house has food. Dad's servants have food. If I go back as one of the servants, I can eat and I can repay the debt. He thinks it's a money thing. He still thinks his relationship with his dad is a financial contract. And so, he stands up from the pigsty, and he rows to his father's house, and while he's on the way, you simply have to imagine that he's thinking, as soon as I get back, I'm going to open a 401K. I'm investing in Apple, I am buying gold, I'm going to sign up for financial peace at City Church, which starts September 22nd and runs for nine weeks. I'm going to listen, to everything that Dave Ramsey has ever published. I'm going to find every podcast on personal finance. I'm going to go to moneycoach.io and watch all of their videos. I, I'm, I'm, go- I'm going to live frugally in uh, no credit cards, all cash, and little envelopes. <laughs> but while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the, son's, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So it is, it's difficult to communicate to you how important this paragraph is. It's, it's. Can we get it back up? Actually, it's difficult to explain uh, how important each line of this is. So we'll do it slowly. This is the point at which you find out that the parable is not about what you would do or what I would do. It's about what God does when God's a father, and it's not just because He takes the boy back while he was still a long way off. In the ancient Near East. You leave a city to greet important people. That's why people come out of Jerusalem to greet Jesus when he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And the farther you go out to meet somebody, the more important they are. So when the father runs out, he greets his son as though his son is a king. He greets him like a dignitary. And then it says, and he felt compassion. The word compassion in Greek is esplanchnethein, and it comes from a noun, splanchnon, that means gut. In Hebrew, the word rechem, means uh, compassion or mercy, and it's actually the word for a womb. And the point is, in ancient Near Eastern culture, specifically amongst Jews, your heart is your gut. Your gut is the seat of tender passions, of kindness and mercy and compassion. And so when his father sees his son and has compassion on him and runs to him, it feels like he's stabbed in the gut, like his guts are all torn up. And if you've ever lost a kid in a grocery store, you entirely know what he's talking about. If you've ever seen someone you love in pain, you know that you feel sick. So he runs out of the city to greet him like a king, sick with love. And uh, when we hear the running out of the city, we get this like, the orchestra starts playing, and it's a very slow chariots-a-fire moment, and they fall on each other, and it's like beautiful and graceful, and all the lights turn on, and the birds start singing, and the music starts playing, not to an ancient Jew. Uh, dignitaries, old men, in the ancient Near East, do not run. Uh, also from Kenneth Bailey, he writes this about old men running in the Orient. An Oriental nobleman with flowing robes never runs anywhere. To do so is humiliating. Ben Sirach, who's a commentator at this point in time, confirms this attitude. He says, a man's manner of walking tells you what he is. It is so very undignified in Eastern eyes for an elderly man to run that Aristotle says, great men never run in public. So not only does he run out of the city to greet his son like a king, But in running out of the city, he puts his own dignity on the line. He would have had to raise his robes to show his shins, which is uh, the most embarrassing show of flesh in ancient culture, second only to being entirely naked. So he runs out of the city to greet his son like a king, with his guts cut up, ashamed, in public. I don't know if that sounds familiar to anybody. The place where God takes on shame in public, the place where God's guts get cut up, the place where God runs out of his house to greet you and I down here on earth. The secret of the cross in the prodigal is that the running father is the symbol of Jesus' crucifixion. This is why it's not a story about what you do or what I would do if some man among you or if some woman among you. It's a story about what God does when God's a father. There's only ever been one crucified and risen savior, and here he is, in father form. He runs out of the city to meet you, like a king. And he's all full of shame, and it's all hugging and kissing. And when he starts saying, I don't deserve this, he doesn't let you finish. He just says, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, put the best robe on him, make the flame and yawn. We're going to celebrate his coming home. I wonder, if when the boy hears all that, the ring and the robe and the shoes, if he doesn't feel a little uncomfortable at first. After all, isn't flagrant spending what got him in this situation to begin with? When he was out there in the Near East trying to buy himself some friends and a Porsche and a saltwater pool, in case you can't tell, I really want a saltwater pool, and a record label and some nice shoes, isn't that what got him there to begin with? The difference is, of course, the father isn't buying a son. The father celebrates his son's return. And in that way, God teaches you and God teaches me what it means to celebrate. In a world that's obsessed with parties, UVA was voted the number one party school by Playboy when I was a first year. It is still entirely unclear to me why they're allowed to do that, but they did. In a world that's obsessed with partying, God teaches us how to celebrate, how to celebrate one another, celebrate coming back to God, celebrate people who just got it in their heads that flagrant spending was their problem, how to be generous to them. I really hope the son could feel that. If you happen to think that that's you, that you're the younger son who's run away, and you're just thinking about looking back, just between you and me, I'm just begging you to do it. Please do it. The story tells the story of a father who runs out of heaven to meet you. I think a lot of times we think we're going to meet an angry old grandfather who will slap us across the cheek with the back of his left hand, which is what the father culturally should do, but that's not what happens. If you think that you might be turning home, I promise you God is watching already from his window on the far horizon. Now, normally, that's where the sermon would end. Unfortunately, we have a whole other chunk to go. So welcome to the seventh-inning stretch. Normally, this is where we end the story, with the sinners coming back to God. But the story keeps going, and it keeps going like this. For this... Oh, no. I'll just read it from the text. The story goes like this. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. You, you don't do that in the ancient Near East. You don't make your dad come out of his own party to get you to go back in. The older son, uh, the older son shames his father Not unlike the younger son shamed his father by demanding half his life. Just as the older father had to run out of the village to get the son to come back, the the older son makes his father leave his own party to barter with him to come back in and celebrate. Usually we think that the older son is the good and nice and responsible one. But you start to see in the story that actually he's not all that different from his younger brother in a number of ways. And then he said, look, These many years I have, it actually says, slaved for you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes comes back, you killed a fattened calf. How does he know that? How does he know about the prostitutes? Luke never said anything about the prostitutes. He just said he lived recklessly. I think he just makes it up. I think he just goes, you know what kind of pastor's kid he is. You don't even have to ask what he's been up to. He's obviously just that kind of person. And then when he comes back, you just welcome him into your arms. I think there's a quick lesson here for you and me, which is don't write other people's autobiographies. You don't have to fill in other people's stories of where they've been and what they was doing and why you need to be all messed up about it and why God's got to give them more. Don't write other people's stories. They're not yours to write and he feels entirely righteous doing it. When your brother comes back to the house from a faraway land, you go into the party. You don't stand there and mope, look, these many years I've served you. (laughs) You go back into the party. Isn't that just the saddest line? Look, these many years I've slaved away for you, you never gave me a goat. He thinks his dad is a stingy guy. Ever since that kid left, He's been bitter, working away in the field, thinking that that kid got what he deserved, and he's here doing what's right. And he simply doesn't have a way to comprehend what it means that when his brother comes back, his father throws a party. He doesn't have room for that. He doesn't have space for that. He doesn't know what to make of this. He feels somehow that it's a direct assault on himself. And the father says, Son, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Evidently, it turns out that you can be always with God and still miss what God cares about. Isn't that just the saddest thing? He spent years slaving away for him, and he still didn't know what God was going to be excited about. This parable is written to you and to me in case we've been uh, walking with God for many, many years and we still don't know what God's on about. This is a lesson for us who have been Christians for a very long time to remember that God cares about people. He wants you to be you and me to be me and we to be we. He wants us back. He cares more about the people than where they've been and he's willing to pay the price to get them back. That's how much God cares. That's the Father's heart. See, if you're a child of God, you're not a child of God because you earn it. Nobody is a son by birth, or a son by worth. Everybody's a son by birth. Really gave that away. (laughs) You know, like, isn't that what we all know from the time we're little kids? Like, you're down here, and then your parents fell in love, and you were next in line, so your soul got shoved into a person's body, and boom, there you were. You had nothing to do with to whom you were born or how you got there. You're a son by worth. God just wants you back. And so the challenge is clear for the older brother. Go join the party. The younger brother is the one whom God wants to celebrate. And the older brother is the one whom God wants to celebrate with. Those are your two options. There are two kinds of people in the world, and everybody gets an invite. Isn't that the funniest thing? So. Uh, As as a kind of conclusion here, I've been thinking a lot about this parable this week, and then this one point hit me that I never thought of before. If God's going to tell a salvation story that everybody can tack on to, that everybody can buy into, a salvation story where everybody gets an invitation to the party, shouldn't it go once there was a man who had six billion sons like, once there was a man who had these sons, and they were all special snowflakes, and he knew every one of them, and he guided them from the time they were little itty-bitty babies, and he brought them through college and grad school and an early job. And then, I mean, shouldn't he tell just an endless number of stories? And the funny thing about that was, what didn't bother me was that I felt like I was slighted. What bothered me was that it looked like God was playing dumb. As though God, in giving us this story, wasn't able to account for the complexity of the world that God had, in fact, created. Every single person and everywhere all the time. So I I sort of went, hey, God, are are there really only two people? Like, aren't you the one that created all these people? aren't you supposed to be the one that doesn't have to tell a story just about two people? You can look at every single person and deal with them individually. Isn't this a little reductionist? Doesn't this make you a little small? And then I started to think about all the stories God has ever told. Out of all the people on the earth, God picked Israel. And don't be mistaken, Israel was a wimpy nation. They're tiny, they're enslaved to Egypt, and he commits to them. God picks Jesus of Nazareth, who is, quite frankly, a relatively uninteresting person, except for the fact that he's the son of God. He's just kind of just another guy, he's just another carpenter. But through the story of Israel, through the person of Jesus, God establishes salvation for the whole world. There's a movie that I love called Big Fish, and in the movie, uh, this kind of like, very witch-like, hell on a bottom Carter figure looks at Ian McGregor, who's gorgeous, and um, she goes, in this world, your father only ever saw two women, your mother and everyone else. (laughs) That line just opened up this thought for me that maybe, God reduces the whole human race to two people because he's committed to them. In a weird sort of way, God commits himself to Israel. Doesn't that shrink God to only being the God of Israel? God commits himself to Jesus Christ. Doesn't that commit God to only one person? God commits himself to two kinds of people, those who've gone astray and those who stayed home shouldn't he commit himself to like six billion people in every possible theoretical universe everywhere? Like, isn't he God? Like the one that's like way up there and can do everything all the time and there's nothing impossible for him. And but somehow, in committing himself to Israel, to Jesus, and to these brothers, he establishes salvation for everybody. I'm not entirely sure how it works, but I know when you're in love, you can only see two people, that person and everyone else. God could see Israel in the world, Jesus in the world, the brothers in the world, God willingly looks like he's not God. He'll do that if that's what it takes to get to you. God will leave the high and mighty heavens, all the clouds and the stars and the bars and the lightning. He'll leave the big words. He'll tell little stories if that's what it takes to get to you. He'll show up in one guy, on one cross, at one time, with one book left if that's what it takes. And the miraculous thing about it is it works. It does actually work. We we go about our lives and we find ourselves spending in no salvation and God shows up as Father. Think about which brother you are, would you? Just for the rest of the week. Think about which brother you are. Is your challenge to come home to God, is your challenge to get back into the party? I'd like the worship team to come out, and I'll say a quick prayer. Worship team, are you prepared? Have I sprung the gun on you? Would you pray with me? Almighty God, you are our Father. Father. I'm not really sure how that works, that you could be the almighty God in our Father, you can be our brother in Christ, you can birth us through the Spirit. But God, we're trusting you to be who you said you were, who you said you are, we're trusting you to make us one of two brothers, the one that you want home and the one that you give an invite to, and they both depend on you. If you don't want us home, then we're not the younger brother, If you don't invite us, then we're not the older brother. If it's not for you, I'm not really sure who we are, so we're trusting you to show up and make us who we are. You be you and we be we, we'll all be together forever. Thank you for that punchline in the gospel. It ends with you wanting us to go live at your house forever. Lord, I pray for anyone now who's maybe thinking that for the first time, that with you is where they wanna be, Pray for anyone who's thought that many times but feels it may be fresh now. Lord, be with them today and the next day and all the days after that. In your name, amen.
2: You guys stand and sing. I hear the Savior's name. crimson state.
0: was a man who had two sons. One he wanted to celebrate and the other one he wanted to celebrate with. Which are you? Let's go to God in prayer as we close. I want to encourage you if you're here this morning and you know that you've been the prodigal, that you've been in the far off country, you've come to the end of yourself, There is a God who loves you, who's been waiting for you and watching for you, and he wants to celebrate you. Will you come home this morning? Will you say yes to Jesus? Will you open up your heart and your life by faith? God, thank you for this story. Thank you for the profound meaning that it has. Dear God, there are two types of people in this world, the one you want to celebrate and the one you want to celebrate with. Jesus, be with us this day. Be with us this day. Capture our hearts with this message. Thank you for your love as we conclude our service, if you would like prayer, our prayer team's going to be coming forward in just a few moments. They're going to be here to pray with you and to pray for you. If you have any needs, we encourage you not to exit City Church without being prayed with and prayed for. And now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And may he give you peace. Let's exit in worship as Ryan leads us. God bless you. Have an awesome week.
2: Thank you guys so much for being here. We'll see you next week.